Welcome to In Their Element, a fascinating new podcast series offering a revealing glimpse into the unfolding careers of passionate science grads from South Australia's number one uni for science, the University of Adelaide. In this episode, we're chatting with our first husband and wife team for the series, Brendan and Laura Carter, who are now absolutely smashing it out there in the workforce in business together with a wine business and distillery. With Laura completing her Bachelor of Agricultural Sciences and Brendan studying a Bachelor of Viticulture and Oenology, this dynamic duo are shaking things up in the wine industry. I'm sure it will delight many of you listeners to know we will be diving into all things vineyards, winemaking, and of course, enjoy fine wines. Welcome to the show, guys. You're our first couple on the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks so much for this having us. It'll be a fun one. <laughs> <laughs> so before we start, we ask every guest on the show a little icebreaker. What is the coolest scientific fact or discovery you know of that you think needs a little moment of appreciation? I mean, for me, it's actually really quite timely. I was uh, yesterday. I was just typing at a bunch of a bunch of things, and um, I came across a quote by Bill Mollison. And I was, it's a bit of a contentious word to say, especially in, in terms of you know science and particularly agricultural science. Bill Mollison was the, I guess, the father of permaculture. Um, but there was just something really awesome that kind of resounded with me. He said, um, "Though the problems of the world are increasingly complex, the solutions remain embarrassingly simple." And I think that's the one of the hallmarks I think of of science that needs probably a little bit more attention is actually how remarkably simple a lot of the fixes. Uh, to our agricultural landscape actually indeed are. Mm. I love that from people like you who are very well versed in, like it's so funny that from your perspective, it's probably quite a simple solution. From my perspective, it's infinitely complex and difficult and intellectual and amazing. But <laughs> I think that's part of what this show is all about is kind of demystifying the things that to the lay person do seem a bit intimidating and sciencey, mm. but that, you know, out in practical life, it's actually things are quite simple <laughs> yeah I think um I think obviously a lot of it comes to do with experience in in the actual field itself and you know we see a really sort of micro view of things um particularly because we are, I mean look I really only deal in the realms of viticulture and maybe sort of dabble in in a sense with horticulture but uh yeah look it's uh, a lot of it ha actually has to do with relinquishing control mm. uh and realizing that especially when it comes to the natural world that we don't actually have a, a fair degree of control that yeah. I, I mean, I love that about you guys and your story is how you have really been able to integrate everything that you know and everything that you've learned with the natural world and how, and you know, the processes and, and cycles and, and the nature of how things actually are rather than trying to kind of force things um, against the grain. So why don't we kick off with your wonderful business and even more wonderful job titles, chief doer and chief thinker at Team Unico. Yeah, I think, um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm chief thinker. I, I, I think of all the crazy ideas and create most of the mess. Uh, Laura's chief doer. She's the one that actually picks up said mess, turns it into, you know, an actual product and uh, something that the customers can latch onto and ensures that uh, at the end of the day that, you know, the ship's not sinking. Uh, I love that. You guys just sound like the most dynamic duo and such a perfect team. I actually also am in business with my husband and I think it only works because we have very complementary roles and we're not trying to overlap too much. So tell us about, you know, starting the business, the two wine labels. I loved reading that, you know, one protects our farmers and another protects our future. Like, mm. Tell us a little bit about how the idea for the wines came about and then moved into the distillery and then the Amaro, how that came about 
about and what you guys actually do day to day? <laughs> it's like too much thinking. Laura, <laughs> did you want to answer that one? Uh, yeah, sure. So we started with Unicozello. That was the first thing and that was in 2012. We did our first vintage in 2013 and that was all about looking at the best possible variety to grow in Australia and particularly South Australia. So given that we don't have a lot of rainfall, we've got really old soils, we're quite a warm growing region compared to, I guess, Europe. When people think of wine, they think of like cool climate and Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, but those varieties don't necessarily grow that well here. They need a lot of intervention in the growing process. So we started looking towards Italian varieties and that was the inception of Unicozello was um, if we can match the variety to the site, given all of the climatic data we, we know and we have, can we actually make wine in a more minimal intervention style? And that's how Unicozello started. We continued doing that and exploring more varieties and really refining that. Uh, and along the way there, we uh, because we were so interested in, I guess, matching variety to site, it sort of interested us in broader agriculture and the implications there. So if you were to take native Australian produce, that that's going to naturally grow the best in Australia because it evolved here. Um, we don't have a native grape variety, so we're always going to have to use imported varieties. Whereas when it comes to um, botanicals that we use in gin, we can start looking at native Australian produce and you know that's going to grow well. A lot of the produce we use in our products is naturally organic because it doesn't need so much intervention. It grows really well. It can be either foraged or it can be farmed. Uh, and it can also add to a farmer's, I guess, repertoire and what they're what they're growing. So instead of having a, a monoculture of maybe an apple orchard or cherry farm, we can now start incorporating natives into that growing area. And all of those botanicals we were able to use in gin. So these are things like saltbush, macadamias, Davidson plum, ryeberries, a lot of things that people haven't necessarily heard of, but have so much flavor and intensity and a um, beautiful for gin and so gin was more a way to be able to take what's unique about Australia and put it into a product that customers could connect to and it wasn't intimidating and it was just an easy way to translate a story that we're really passionate about but in a product that people can easily consume and connect with. The third part of our business is harvest, which is the um, I think you referred to it as giving back to our farmers and supporting farmers, and that's called Harvest. So it's a second wine brand, and it's a growers cooperative model. So it's more of a uh, business model uh, where we profit share 50-50 with local growers in the area. Everyone's within five kilometer radius of the winery, and it's all uh, conventional varieties. So these varieties that I've said before don't necessarily grow that well here in Australia, but this is what a lot of growers have because that's what the market has wanted with the Australian wine industry has traditionally grown Shiraz and Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and all of these growers have invested in those varieties but there's been an oversupply and prices have been dropping yeah. so we created Harvest to offer a new business model that supports those varieties but also supports the transition from traditional varieties to new and more sustainable varieties oh this is so cool I mean like even just as an outsider I think sometimes in particular industries you just take for granted that there's wine you buy it you drink it it tastes different and you forget how much goes into the behind the scenes particularly that people like you guys are out there focus on making it more sustainable rather than just the science of producing a good wine mm. and one of the things that I think has stood out a lot about your brands is that you assume that you know a business that's going into more natural wines or natural production is going to be much more expensive but your reasonable price point and being able to keep that going while also making <laughs> use of waste fruits and other sustainability practices is amazing and you guys were also the first Australian distiller to get your B Corporation certification which is uh, certified B Corporations of businesses that meet certain very high standards of 
verified social and environmental performance and, you know, really hit those targets of, you know, sustainability as well. So tell us a little bit more about how the sustainability practices have grown uh, because I think that's something that most people probably don't know about, that there are different ways to do things, some that are more sustainable than others and the choices you guys have made along the way. <laughs> it's actually really, like you actually made a really, really good point there regarding things like, you know, approachable price points and stuff like that. And, you know, the number one sort of friend to sustainability is efficiency. The most sustainable enterprise out there really is going to be the one with the least amount of waste, which means therefore it should be ongoing the least amount of, of what we call cogs cost of goods therefore either those products that are the most sustainable if they are indeed the most sustainable should actually be delivering their business owners the, the either the, the biggest margins or at least the customers the best possible price so I, I, it always irks me a little bit when i see sort of you know an organic thing and it's like you know it's, it's so much more expensive and they go yeah but there's just so much waste and i'm like yeah but it actually shouldn't be that way. Mm. You know, you're working really, really hard to produce your organic produce then and perhaps maybe you should think about what produce that actually is and maybe there's something else that you can produce organically that's going to be less wasteful, that's going to deliver the customer not just, you know, better value but yourself, better margins. And this is this is sort of comes down to like the, the grand crux and it's, it's probably very controversial to say but a lot of people are saying they're sustainable without actually knowing if they are, mm. without actually having that that quantified and verified. It's an unregulated term. Anyone can just say, hey, we're sustainable. Oh, why? Because, you know, we're a bar that, that doesn't use any straws. We don't use any plastic straws. I'm like, yeah, but do you use pens? Yeah. You know, oh, yeah, of course we use pens. Do you, do you realize pens can't properly be recycled? Do you know a pen only writes 1.2 kilometers? Uh, but a pencil, which can be recycled, which can actually organically break down, writes 56 kilometers. Oh, my God. So don't worry about your straws. <laughs> Worry about things like pens because, and we're putting numbers and quantifying these things. And this is where B Corp really comes into it. And it was actually Laura, I'm sort of hijacking Laura's part of the conversation right now because Laura, Laura was the one that really spearheaded this stuff. We both were, were growing quite irate that a lot of people were firstly using sustainability as a, as a selling point. I think the traditional business concept should still apply. If your product is, is good at a really good price point and, and represents amazing value to a customer, it's going to sell. If your product is good, represents great and amazing value to a customer and happens to be sustainable, I'm like, it does, it's not really, you're only as sustainable as the next person who says that they're more sustainable than you are. B Corp presented a, an amazing uh, clarity for us was that it was a third party verification process where, uh, and, and you have to pay to be a part of it. It's actually quite, quite an extensive process and it took us, you know, nearly a year to be able to get certified and they go through everything. And it's not just about environmental sustainability, which is the only one people seem to focus on. But what about social sustainability? Mm. What about the fact that, you know, we have some of the most sustainable enterprises in the world that happen to, um, you know, give their CEO bonuses that are in the thousands of percentages more than the least paid employees they actually employ. B Corp prevents that. It, it prevents us from being so greedy as owners of the business that, you know, we grow it and we don't bring along both our, our, our staff, our suppliers and our community with us. You know, we're here to add value to those three arms external to, to the business. Otherwise, one could only assume that you're taking value from one thing and delivering it to somewhere else. Mm. Um, so unless we're adding value to the environment, our suppliers, our staff and our community, then we technically shouldn't exist in our opinion. Yeah. I love that you guys have been able to work in your passion for the environment and sustainability within successful business as well. I think it's so important for people to know they can do both without sacrificing on a good product and building a great community. Oh, totally. But you also got, both of you just sound so passionate about 
what you do. So when did you actually decide that you were interested in winemaking and, you know, go back to your younger selves and how you <laughs> chose what you what you went into? Did you ever think you'd go into business with your partner? Did you did you always think it would be wine and the environment or, you know, how did you choose your pathways and your degrees? Like explain how that happened and also when you guys got together along the way. <laughs> That's actually pretty good. Laura, you've got this one. Uh, yeah, well, we actually got together like, what, I think the first week of university. No way! Uh, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we've, now, we've now known each other for 10 years. When we first met, so Brendan was already studying uh, winemaking and I'm sure he can tell you how he landed on that path, but I was actually studying environmental science. So right from the outset, I knew that's what I wanted to do and I sort of thought I would go into perhaps water management. I was quite passionate about that. But, you know, when you leave high school, really you don't, know exactly what you want to do and you don't really know how things are going to play out but after meeting Brendan he taught me how to taste wine we would go to a nice wine bar and I learned a lot about an industry that I thought was probably wine can be a little bit pretentious and (laughs) not super welcoming and not if you don't know anything about it but what I got to learn by spending time with Brendan and spending time with these winemakers and producers was that there's a lot more there's a lot more to it that for the most part winemakers are very passionate about the environment and they do really care about how things are grown and the way things are done and and the craft and the art is so important and they'll they'll make sacrifices to make sure that the craft is held high and the quality of the product is really high uh, so I, I still didn't actually study winemaking. I was, I was interested in it, but not enough to study it. But what I did do was I moved out of environmental science. So I ended up moving into agricultural science because I felt that had a lot more, um, it was an established industry. There was a way of doing things already. And so it was just making incremental improvements on the agricultural system we already have. Mm. Uh, so that's what I ended up doing. And I, I spent uh, three and a half years Uh, doing that. So I started with environmental science, moved into agriculture, but by the end of my degree, I was working in a winery uh, and I was um, on the path to be a winemaker, even though I didn't actually ever get qualified as one. I just learnt on the job. That is also so cool for people to know. I think everyone thinks that you do come out of uni and you just know what you're going to do and then you end up doing it. But even the fact that you could swap degrees and then you could end up doing something that wasn't necessarily the clearest pathway from your degree. I love that you were able to still build that into your time at uni. And like I was reading that, you know, in agricultural sciences there's such a practical element to you know there's a working farm at Roseworthy there's so many different ways that you can get involved in the industry and figure out what you want to do from such a broad range of choices yeah you know, I think yeah. um, a lot of people look at something like farming and they just go oh you know you're a cattle farmer yeah or, you know you, you, you know you, you farm sheep or you do grain you know I, I, far- farming is so much more than that like sure they're, they're the I guess you would call them commodities of, of a sense, but there is so, 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 so much more, uh, you know, than that. It's an understanding of soil, understanding of climate, understanding of water use. These are all really, you know, we're talking about jobs that, uh, if you want job security, for example, you know, everyone's got to eat food. Um, and then from our perspective, you know, at the end of the day, you know, viticulture, it's not feeding people. Wine is absolutely a luxury product, no matter what price point. But what we we exist in the realms of culture. What's feeding people if they don't have any culture? Mm. Uh, and wine is is sort of at the crux of that. Of, of pretty much, I'm going to say, you know, wine or a fermented beverage of sorts is at the crux of pretty much every single culture that we've seen around the world. And that's that's where we sort of exist. I and mean, we were just remarking with everything that's going on with um, COVID-19. Like we we are what we call primary producers. 
you know, if we start to, to falter or fail, the next step is actually going on to farmers. And, you know, you can imagine if farmers are, are financially hit, mm. then then who who is going to be feeding the nation? How 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 is anyone going to get, get by? Mm. Um, you know, it, talking of the, the most critical roles in society, being a farmer, and, and it's actually a, a, something obviously we're really quite passionate about is getting getting young people engaged in farming. Yeah. Make farming the coolest thing ever. Yeah. And we're going to have a ton of young people that want to do it. But instead, you know, and, and there's there's obvious advantages to, to obviously the lifestyle, but I, I don't think there's a lot of people that place a lot of value in it. But, um, and, and this is where sort of Laura, Laura and I really, really exist in the realms of it. I don't think a lot of people really talk to young people the way that young people want to be spoken to. Yeah. Um, and because we started this when we were 19 years old, we have a unique perspective on on how I guess uh, the the dirty M word millennials, how we think and how how we like to see the world, uh, and that gives us the the ability for us to be able to communicate about something like wine or something like farming mm. or you know sustainable agriculture, not as a you know bashing the Bible so to speak, but um, you know but something that actually has substance, something that's legitimately real. Well, I think that's why this podcast is so important, and conversations like this are so important because to the outside person like me I hear agricultural sciences I thought farming but then when I really looked into what you you get to study there are things like global food shortages and changing climate and there's industry transforming technologies like drones like there's so there's so many more aspects to it than you expect as a lay person and I mean ag, te- ag tech is like one of the the things that just I, I'm a tech geek <laughs> uh, and I am like some of the stuff that ag tech's coming out with at the moment I was involved at university something called precision viticulture where they were using drones to sort of map out vineyards and map out, uh, you know, what we, we call um, uh, precise irrigation methods, and it was just, it was just a really great application of technology in in a, um, you know, let's face it, where 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 have the last great innovations of agriculture ever come from? Mm. You know, uh, South Australia is famous for quite a fair few of them, but none of them are technological. It's not like we've innovated the tractor. Yeah. Um, you know. What, what we've done is, uh, admittedly, uh, and, and it's not through anyone's fault of their own apart from the fact that the market demands it, is we've looked to modify what we're already growing to get it to grow better. Mm. Um, so that's the, the you know, in a sense, trying to fit a square peg into a round hole when there are a bunch of round pegs just lying around right in front of our eyes that are like, why don't you just grow this and find a way to use that? <laughs> Uh, better, and that, that's in the case of say natives, whether it's native Australian millet or these other things. You know, we have a marketing problem more so than we have an agricultural problem. Enter this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I love that you two did actually end up studying different things at similar times and bringing different perspectives to what you've ended up doing together. So Laura did three years of ag sciences. Brendan, you did. Viticulture Anology. and Oenology. Yeah. So, and I mean, both degrees, uh, the university is so well renowned for this. You, you know, Uni of Adelaide is ranked number three in the world for wine research by any university. Mm-hmm. So guys, what about the structure of your degrees? How did it actually unravel sort of during your three years and on which campuses and, and all that stuff? Uh, well, I started out, uh, I th- you do the majority of your first year actually in the city. Uh, at least when I, I, I went to um, university and then uh, ongoing, we uh, did the remainder of our university studies uh, for viticulture and enology out at, um, out at the Wake campus. Uh, and I think it was a bit of a change because it used to be out at Roseworthy. Um, however, I think that's that's lar- largely just the, the agricultural or, or veterinary students uh, out that way. But um, no, the structure was fantastic. Uh, we did, obviously, they cover all aspects. They start off with a solid basis of science, though, which I think is is at the time, you're probably sort of pulling your hair out a little bit because like, oh, when am I going to get my hands dirty and get, you know, get dirty with some grapes? Um, and get drunk. And you do indeed actually, 
Yeah, well, I mean, they do the, the sensory study sessions, which are absolutely fantastic. And I love the fact that they put them on a Friday afternoon. Um, <laughs> they It makes sense, really, because it's hard to study after that. Um, but I uh, know they did uh, just the, the basis in soil science, the scientific methodology that they really sort of uh, cram into you to be able to critically think about a lot of the stuff that, that you are learning and observational stuff, having a, you've got a model vineyard uh, that allows you to actually experience, you know, what it's like to actually do sort of actual viticulture, sort of practicalities of that. I actually think by far, though, that the best thing about doing the degree, especially at the Wake Campus in viticulture, is their proximity to like Sardi their proximity to, uh, you know, these amazing research labs and the AWRI and some of the technology that they actually have there and how, as a student, accessible that technology is. Um, you know, as, as a student, I could just kind of walk into the AWRI's library and rather than having to subscribe to a lot of these industry journals, which are very expensive, um, they have them delivered there for students to be able to access uh, ad hoc whenever they want uh, to go through. And that's there was a lot of times that I'll just spend my sort of lunch hours and stuff just sitting in the in the library, just being able to read and actually make use of a lot of those those resources. Mm. Um, the the plant genomics lab, uh, the plant growth accelerator, all of these things were just amazing technologies that really sort of framed your overall experience. That you were you were actually going to a university that knew how to innovate agriculture and knew how to do it really well. Oh, that's so cool. I mean, I love that you guys have an on-campus vineyard and studying hard for you guys is like literally just learning more about wine and becoming more cultured. Like, that's so cool. Totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> and Laura, you didn't do the same degree, but what was agricultural sciences like for your three years? Uh, yeah. So first year is very similar to the winemaking degree. So a lot of basic science at, at the city campus. And then the next two years of the degree was a real split between Roseworthy where um, all the animal and animal science based courses were. And then the other half was out at Wake Campus, which was all the plant health and soil um, and yeah, more of the plant based stuff. But it was good to be able to kind of once you get through the first year, you really do break away once you go to those other two campuses and you do get a lot closer to the people that you're studying with and it all becomes a little bit clearer as well. It's putting what you did in your first year now into context and also into practical experience. And so, so much of the degree was outdoors and it was hands-on and, you know, that's it's a, it's a good way to learn and get experience really quickly. And the fact that Roseworthy is an actual functioning farm <laughs> means that, like they're, they're real animals. Like they're not they're not scientific animals there that students are with every year. Like they will be selling these animals, and so you feel like like there's a bit of pressure there. Like you have to get it right. <laughs> and I remember leaving like leaving the gate open one time um, when we were sorting uh, sheep. That was like straight away. I was like, whoa, well, I'll never do that again. Um, and you know, and you learn so quickly. So that was really cool. Uh, and then yeah, like Brennan said, the the infrastructure that they have at Wake Campus is just so incredible. And I think it's easy to take for granted at the time. And then when you leave, you realize how valuable having all of that information right at your fingertips was. Mm. Oh my gosh, it literally sounds like the University of Adelaide is like a science Disneyland where you can just it's a bit like that. Go to like it is a bit like that, and go to a vineyard. <laughs> so cool. It's it's, it's a a lot like that, actually, uh, especially when I saw the, the, <laughs> the plant growth accelerator for the first time, I was just completely smitten. I thought that was the coolest, coolest <laughs> stuff I'd seen in a really long time. Oh, my God. That should be the new marketing yep. slogan. <laughs> Science, Disneyland, <laughs> here at university. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Very, very cool. So what about from a technical perspective, sort of the, you know, what's the actual difference between, say, viticulture and enology? And how did you get your practical experience along the way of what those actually mean? Yeah, I mean, we, um, oh, firstly, the difference between enology, uh, ology, obviously, is science of uh, enol 
of wine. So the science of wine and then viticulture, which is um, like, think of it horticulture, but with vines. So very sort of uh, specific to the agricultural practical aspect of growing vines, farming aspects. And then, uh, you know, analogy is, is all basically, you know, how do you craft wine and the science of biology and the science of, of chemical pathways and, and cleanliness in wineries and things like that. But I have to say, like a lot of the practical stuff that, that Laura and I did, we, you know, we started a business in our first year of university. No way. Um, yeah, well, we, we started, I basically, by the time that we finished, we were self-employed and the business had already grown. We, had, we, we, we worked in a few other wineries along the way during sort of either the off season or in different season, if we're in like a different side of the hemisphere before things just grew to become, you know, really full-time and we had employees. But we, we had our first employee, I believe, in our last year of university. Oh, my um, gosh. So things really kicked off pretty quickly for us. And, of course, when we started, you know, you know, we started one thing and then we started the next thing and the next thing we thought, you know, between Harvest, Applewood and Unico, one of them was bound to fail um, and it didn't. They all kind of grew at the same time. But <laughs> I, I tell you what, what I did, we, I went to university, I think, I, Christ, when did I graduate, Laura? 2013 yeah. or 14, yeah. yeah. It was a really odd time for the wine industry because it was going through a massive transitional phase. We'd just come out of the GFC, so our exports were shot, the big companies were hurting. Um, there was a big backlash against commoditized wine or industrialized wine production. The university programs, as they tend to do, struggle to actually just keep up. And so we, we found we were going over similar sort of stuff that was very quickly sort of lacking relevance, but where there were a couple of really amazing units that we ended up doing that um, that was trying to sort of like get us involved. In, and this is what we're talking about is the natural wine movement. And then we also had the alternative variety movement, which is sort of a cousin to the natural wine movement, all happened at the same time. And no one knew how to tackle this. Like university lecturers were, were struggling to keep up, but we had a couple that just really made the entire course, you know, for us. Um, and I, I definitely remember in particular, uh, one of our, our teachers or lecturers, uh, Sue Bastian, was like, hey, we're going to bring in, you know, these natural wine guys and basically succeeded in screwing up an entire uh, batch of winemaking students in one afternoon uh, because <laughs> we were tasting orange wines and, you know, having, having you know, dry-aged meats out of people's cellars and stuff. And it made put wine back in a context for a lot of us. And I think that's what a lot of us were actually searching for was to actually break the bounds of science and, and get into the art form side mm. of things. That being said, I rely so, so, so heavily on the the knowledge that was imparted to us during that degree particularly the scientific side because the natural wine mandate is like a dogma right it's like you know thou shalt not even look at the numbers and that's where we get these basically these these very faulty terribly made wines the fact that we come both Laura and I actually come from a scientific background allows us to be able to approach something and it gives us so much more confidence to be minimal intervention wines that actually are very tasty and and do achieve true levels of sustainability that are quantifiable and we are quantifying these things it's only because we trained at university mm. uh you know at the end of the day we, we rely quite heavily on that um that knowledge although at the time we probably weren't so respectful of it yeah i mean think. that's the trait of a uni student right that you're like i'm never going to use any of this but then totally end up ultimately appreciating it later on <laughs> oh man totally yeah absolutely there's the, the amount of conversations we have like between law and i and we even were up late last night talking about our methods of you know different methods of farming or new world farming are actually based in amazing levels of science of like permaculture what we call Fukuoka method farming and then some that that has latched on and have no science or, or very little science like biodynamics for example mm. uh, or you know 
the the different levels of organics that there are and there are different levels based on who certifies you and there's not a lot of conversation going around about about those things but we do rely quite heavily on having a um either like a scientific methodology or an analytical mind to be able to basically sort the wheat from the chaff so to speak yeah well i definitely want to dive a little bit deeper into the actual science mainly because i'm personally fascinated about it i'm a total wine noob and (laughs) i heard that your first wine was a fiano and i don't even know what that is but before we jump into that laura can you just tell us a little bit about if you hadn't gone you know you mentioned that your degree wasn't actually wine focused if you hadn't gone down the wine pathway what have some of your peers gone into for example just to show the breadth of kind of what ag sciences can be beyond winemaking and you mentioned something about like water projects and other areas that you could have gone into so what have some of your peers ended up doing uh so i think what was interesting about the ag degree was that a lot of it was kind of a 50-50 split. So probably half the people that were studying with me were already from farms, but they were there studying because they didn't want to be a farmer and they didn't want to do what their parents did. Mm. And then there was probably the other half, which was thinking a little bit more about what other paths were available. So a lot of people have gone into agronomy uh, and consultation, some into research, and also agribusiness is growing quite a lot. Mm. Um, and they were, or those students were already able to recognise how critical that is to, like I guess, rural communities and supporting farming systems. But the funny thing is for the people that would make jokes about how they're here because they don't want to be farmers, a lot of them have actually gone home and looked after their own farms so obviously over the course of that degree and and also like when I was studying we'd just come out of the millennial drought and that had really that had framed a lot of those students perceptions on on farming that it was it was really tough and things can be going so so well for so long and then all of a sudden you have a drought happen and a really persistent drought and Mm. there's just no way out of it Mm. but I think you know, after the degree, they were going back home with a lot more, um, a lot more knowledge and a lot more, um, I guess, innovative spirit to be able to tackle this challenge, which is not only huge and significant, but it's going to happen more and more. So we have to find a solution. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. And I also read there's a lot, not just of, you know, agricultural farming in the way that you generally interpret it, but there's also urban farming and vertical farming and all these different, you know, ways to bring those practices more into Mm. the sort of modern city metropolis as well. That's really cool. It's it's really interesting. Like we watch quite a lot of videos on, yeah, they're like, they are urban farms, but they're like in warehouses. They're kind of like uh, hydroponic greenhouse setups and they grow like herbs and I think they're, what are they called, Brennan? They're like multi-story farms yeah they're, they're um oh it, it escapes me but yeah it, it is it is basically aquaponics or hydroponics That's yeah so cool they're, they're industrialized it's like it's pretty cool there's a lot of research going into it because they're like this is the answer because the population's growing and we can't grow enough food for the amount of people we we actually need to go up like we need to build up so they're creating these vertical farms um, but what they're finding is that because they don't have natural soil there there's something there's something missing in the in the growing process and they're actually struggling to make it work and they can't at the moment they still can't explain why and all they can say is that there is something about actual soil and growing food and actual land that is making a difference between the growing patterns of of these of this food oh my gosh it's so fascinating there's just like such a huge world of science and farming and agriculture out there that like oh I just oh my god I could talk to you guys for ages but back to winemaking because I feel like I should really just let you go to town on explaining to assume that I know nothing because I don't yeah tell us about the actual 
actual art of making a wine. Yeah. I think there's a lot of consumers out there and I love hearing that you did get to taste wine as part of your studies and that was actual like mm. research for you guys. Yeah, but legitimately. But in terms of making it and, you know, the spectrum from a dry to a full-bodied wines, like what are the kinds and how did you choose which wines you were going to focus on? And then also how is technology in the industry starting to change and make, you know, open up new possibilities for you? Yeah, wow. Okay. So essentially with, um, in terms of wine, and I can only really speak from an Australian perspective, most wine that is, is consumed out of Australia typically is either from two particular varieties. The red variety would be Shiraz, and we're unique that we call it Shiraz. So it's actually technically called Syrah. And white variety, typically Chardonnay. And I'm really talking about the, the we're talking the big numbers right now. Uh, we're a majority export industry by fair proportion. Most of the those those grapes that have wine of Australia printed on the side have not actually come from our quality regions or what we call cool climate regions of, say, Yarra Valley, Mornington Peninsula, Adelaide Hills. But most of them, in fact, actually come from the, the part of the Murray River system. So that would be Riverina, Murray-Darling and Riverland uh, across the three states of, of New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia, respectively. Uh, they're heavily, heavily, heavily irrigated. And when I when I'm in heavily irrigated, we're talking about, you know, this year we heard numbers of upwards of 15 megs per hectare. Now, 2.9 megs corresponds to an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Oh my god! And we're talking close to, I think it's like seventy nine thousand hectares, um, you know, and that's that's fifteen megs per hectare. So it's an, a, a drastic amount of water. Now, grapes aren't necessarily the thirstiest things either. They're absolutely not. There's way more thirsty things out there. Grapes are actually on the good end of the spectrum. But our sort of position was, why do we even why do we even irrigate that at all? The reason why is um, a couple. Well, firstly, the market demands. We built a really good reputation for Shiraz and Chardonnay uh, internationally, and that's where most of this wine goes. And you've got to make more of it. You know, if there's a market for it, you've got to make more of it. So um, you plant it in the only place that that you can you can find and find cheap land that has access to to outrageous sums of water because you're going to need it when you take a great variety that comes from a very wet, cold place that doesn't have a lot of sunshine. So, you know, where Shiraz and Chardonnay comes from, you're really looking at 150 to 180 days of sunshine a year and around about one and a half to two metres of rain a year. And you go and plant it in the Riverland <laughs> that, that has, you know, this year was less than 300 mil oh, of rain, you know, making it a classified desert. Uh, according to FAO standards. This great variety in particular, firstly, has come from a very wet place. You put it in a very dry place. So it's actually evolved to be very wasteful with water. It's not what we call very water use efficient. So you need to top up the water in the profile. But what it has become very efficient is actually using sunlight because it's come from a place that has no sunlight. You're putting it in a place that has lots of sunlight. So it's churning and burning through photosynthates at a crazy rate. And you have to actually water it to about four times the quantity just to have the same effect. And there's there's a myriad of different issues when it comes to that, when it comes to salt damp rising, you know, ruining soil structure and stuff like that. So that's that, like when, when we're talking about sort of wine in Australia, that's sort of the situation that, that we're at about maybe 10 years ago and largely a little bit are now as the, the dollar is, you know, it's really actually quite related on our, our uh, dollar rates for the US, you mm-hmm. know, because we, we send we send so much wine uh, to the UK and the US respectively. And, and now that our dollar is quite weak, it makes makes our exports look really, really healthy overseas. The way that we decided to actually tackle this was to go to that same area and look at great varieties that use, you know, next to no water or zero water entirely. So we were looking at, at and firstly, like, you know, if you turn the, the tap off on Shiraz and Chardonnay, they will just die. And I'm like, well, that means that you have a great variety that requires the intervention of a human being just to live. That's a bit much. So why don't you try and find a great variety that grows as if it was, would, would grow in a wild manner? And that, that was how we ended up landing on the grape varieties that we focus on, uh, Fiano, uh, which is a white grape variety from uh, southern Italy, and uh, Nero d'Avola, or just Nero for short, which is uh, from Sicily, 
um, and they require a fraction of the water. We're talking one to two megs per hectare, and that's in a, that's in a desert region. When we start to get up to places like the Adelaide Hills, we're talking dry grown. We're talking oh no gosh. no irrigation. Yeah, yeah, I know. In Australia, you can actually. Uh, grow things without having to irrigate them. That that sounds very crazy, right? Yeah, but fascinating. <laughs> Would you believe that the vast majority of grapes grown in France and Italy are not irrigated? Oh my gosh. Would you believe that they, they are so adamant about that, that they actually protect it by law? It's called AOC or DOCG. You might actually see these little stamps when, when you buy a bottle of Italian wine, this, this government stamp to reach that level of quality of which, not by volume, but the vast bulk of brands uh, we'll reach that. It is illegal to irrigate. You will go to jail. That is um, But in Australia, we do the opposite. And it's because we're growing the wrong stuff here. We, we really are, we're growing the stuff here that actually um, that we can sell, but not necessarily the land can support. And this, this isn't just about viticulture now. Like this can be applied to a lot of agriculture and a lot of horticulture. I'm going to say the vast bulk of all of it. But we have an answer. You just change what you put in the ground and you drive them, you change the market and then it will start to value it. Uh, so the plants that have evolved here due to geographic isolation are really, really special to this plot of land. We, we have such little volcanic activity. We have little you know, movement of earthquakes and folding of land. We have one of the, well, we do have the oldest patch of dirt that human beings get to exist on at four and a half billion years old. Mm. Our average soil age is 250 million years old, which is about three times the age of California's landmass, about four times the age of most of Europe, Europe as, as an entirety. Um, so we, are, we exist on one big old sponge as an <laughs> island. And big old sponges aren't really great things to grow stuff in. Mm. But fortunately, over the course of 150 million years, a lot of native ingredients have actually grown here without humans even being, being a part of it. And if they are, typically it's been fire that's actually terraformed our, our landmass. Now, the thing is, you, you start looking at things like, you know, native ingredients and you know, mate, if I asked you, it's like, hey, man, we're going to, you know, we're going to season this uh, this lamb out the back with some salt bush. We've got a bit of like a rye berry jam going on. And, you know, do you, do you guys prefer, you guys like Davo plums? Yeah, absolutely. Or Illawarra plums? or <laughs> Kakadu want plums? Some, want some bunion nuts with that thing? Uh, you know, want some river mint or do you want some wild thyme? And most Australians can't really reconcile with that sort of stuff because, to be honest, we've been kind of ignorant of it. But also because we've been ignorant of it, it means that they're not worth anything. No one wants to buy that stuff from farmers. So our job is to actually monetize that stuff for farmers so we can incentivize more farmers putting them in the ground, displacing things that are chewing up most of our actual resources, natural resources. And so we sort of managed to find a, a really interesting avenue outside of, of viticulture, you know, outside and going, you know, right into the realms of, of native Australian agriculture. Um, in, when, when, when it comes into the realms of spirits. But when you actually think of, you know, wineries, wineries have always evolved uh, to utilise byproducts of a fruit industry. Mm. And then spirits have actually, uh, you know, distilleries, for example, have evolved to use the byproducts of the wine industry. That's so cool. I mean, I think one of the things that people forget is that uh, scientists are not, you know, I think we get this image of the crazy scientist in the lab, but really out in the real world and the application of all the things that you're learning is science, it just solves problems. It just sees a problem in society on a mass scale and someone uses science to solve that problem. Oh, well, yes, it's, 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 it's basically observation. Yeah. I also love how you guys have been able to make it a very light touch. Like it's science. I think we often think that it's very interventionist into nature like to intervene in things that uh, you know we want to make better or like
like genetic modification and all that kind of stuff. But science can actually be working out how to have less intervention uh, in things. But are there some examples out there in society that, you know, we might recognize and not really appreciate come from science that are a little bit more, I want to say hands-on in terms of solving a, a, a problem. So, for example, I read that you guys were recently affected by the, you know, January and February bushfires, but that, mm. you know, science has been able to come in and measure smoke contamination and help you know how to, you know, react and respond to those impacts. But there are also satellites now that measure moisture in soil. Like there are so many ways it can intervene a little bit to give us a better picture and more information that can help us make better choices. What are some of the applications of tech in that way that you found really cool? Uh, Yeah, I think like you mentioned, data collection is probably the biggest thing is that all the decisions that we make, whether, yeah, and it's hard because I think a lot of what we do instinctually is what we've learnt from experience by doing this over and over, which is literally the definition of science. So now we can talk from experience and say that this is how, this is how our wine is made and this is what happens if we pick it this date versus this date. But the reality is it all comes down to numbers and data. Mm. Um, So I guess the tech application in our business is is data collection and trying to learn as much as we can uh, from numbers. So we do analyze all of our wines and we do analyze all of the water moisture in the vineyard, and that's only going to get easier and easier. And the the, the challenge now is actually making the investment in that um, to get the quality of the data really good to be able to get that infrastructure out to growers so that they can use it to make good decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I like the um the concept of say for example you know the the way that wine is made basically you get a bunch of grapes you crush them up get the juice out or if it's red wine you leave it on its skins that's how it gets its color and basically microbes come along particular microbes Saccharomyces cerevisiae yeast <laughs> chews up all the sugar spits out spits out alcohol and a bunch of carbon dioxide because it's the process of naturally process of rotting essentially and we stop it at a particular point when it's really tasty um let it settle out and bottle it and that's that's how we make wine now um to determine what now we we have a self-imposed i guess rule here which is what we call wild fermentation we don't we don't inoculate our wines with any yeast we just let it ferment naturally of whatever yeast are in the vineyard or in the winery at the time now and this is something that we actually learned at university was that ph the ph of a particular solution will largely determine the environment or is the environment that uh, microbes can possibly grow and you change the ph you completely change the microbes that's why like um, when you wash your hands with soap, for example, drastically changes to an alkaline pH, and that pretty much kills most, nukes most microbes, and that's why soap is so damn cool. Um, <laughs> with with wine, though, wine that's heavily irrigated, grape vines that were heavily irrigated, you see massive, massive, like really high spikes of pH, which means that you need to adjust it by adding acidity, and then you you know you 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 would use a bit of sulfur to to basically nuke everything that that could potentially have grown in that wrong pH environment, and then you would inoculate it with a new yeast out of a packet. We don't have that luxury. And when we started to measure things like pH instead of sugar levels, because sugar levels is always determined, you know, what uh, what has been most sellable uh, of, of a wine. You know, does it have good, nice, high alcohol and is a really deep, rich color and, you know, just hitting the, the volume up button on every aspect of that wine, therefore derive, you know, gives you more value. Um, we don't have that luxury. And in fact, when we started to not irrigate vineyards, we started to see the pHs naturally drop. And then they entered the winery and were like, wow, I actually... We don't need to adjust the pH. It's already mm. the, it's already perfect. And then it just started fermenting by itself and it fermented all the way through. So we were making this this concept of what's known as natural wine. Uh, and there are varying sort of degrees of, I guess, naturalness when it comes to n- natural wine. It's a, it's a controversial term in the industry. Um, <laughs> we weren't making it because we wanted to. 
we made making it because well i mean why would why would you over acidify if it's already got the perfect acidity why mm. why would you inoculate it if it's already fermenting fine by itself uh, these are all happenstance things based on a viticultural decision we made of right variety right place no irrigation or low irrigation uh, and uh, and and bring bring the result of that back into the winery. We also saw naturally lower alcohol levels as a result too. Kind of re- you know we often talk about how alcohol levels are rising in wines because of of uh, of you know global climate change, which is indeed is happening. But I would say that they're rising because of, of changing viticultural methods in response to a grape variety not even belonging oh there. Oh my gosh! You know this... we're getting like eleven and a half percent without even trying, and that's and imperfect numbers that are fermenting just fine. And this is not dissimilar to to what you see out of Europe on a on a yearly annual basis. Oh, you guys are such a cool example of the ways that you can use science out in the real world. And I think I, a lot of people will have had their minds opened to just the thought and detail and level of innovation that goes into bringing the wines that we, I think, take for granted <laughs> that come to our tables. So mm. last two questions for each of you. What is something that you would love to see science make possible in your industry? So for like the medical guests we've had on, there's obviously been like cure for cancer. In your world, what would your ideal scientific discovery or problem solving be? And the second question is, what would you say to people who think science isn't for them? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, First off, uh, the the two things I'd like to see, um, not just one thing, but two things, uh, I would like to see science eliminate irrigation from all forms of anything that we grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and se- and that, that's obviously an agricultural-based one. Uh, second thing would be um, a more mechanical-based one. I'd like to see um, science actually fix up our – and this is like they go hand-in-hand hand, technically. Uh, science would need to come up with a better, a better way to – or carbon-neutral way to be able to move produce from one point to another. Ooh. So basically you can achieve something where you actually – I know we're talking about decentralization because that's that's safe, but it doesn't really work that way. If you could centralize your food, so grain grows where grain is meant to grow, but you just find a very carbon neutral way or very uh, carbon positive way, in fact, to be able to move that produce to a city center, that means you don't need to actually decentralize and then have to irrigate and have to add these things to try to fit square pegs in the round holes. You can just, you can go harvest square pegs where, you know, square holes are and harvest round pegs where <laughs> round holes are. Uh, and you just use a very efficient way to be able to bring that to a city centre or you grow your city centres out where where those are. Yeah, and for people that uh, aren't into science, um, it's, it's not not for you, but I mean, it's an understanding that science, science isn't isn't just a field by itself. You know, uh, you look at uh, music, for example, that is a is true art form, but it's grounded in a basis of science. Uh, science is, is a method of thinking, uh, a method of observing the outside world. It's, it's not... Um, you know, just because you put an ology at the end of something doesn't necessarily mean you're a scientist. Um, it's it's just a really amazing way to critically think about the world around you and to be able to observe and improve it. Amazing. So everyone's a science person, unless they really don't like to improve things. <laughs> well, that, that flips it in a way that I think lots of people will be wanting to identify themselves as scientists now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about you, Laura? Uh, yeah, definitely agree with Brendan on, yeah, that science is more, it's more a perspective and a way of observing things and the the great thing about it is there's just so many fields like we've spoken about agriculture and and farming and winemaking today but science covers so many different aspects and even if you do study science it's not you don't necessarily have to go into that particular field that you studied but those skills are so transitional Mm. um even if you're not working directly in science Mm. Uh, and then in terms of innovation i think I, i 
I would love, and we've spoken about this um, pretty much from the start of the business and certainly when we started the distillery was, um, and it's a bit of a theme in um, in Australia at the moment about like waste produce. So, you know, only about 50% of what's actually grown on farm is delivered out to consumers and there's a lot of uh, produce that doesn't meet quality grades and what can mm. you do with that produce. And in, within our own business, we use, um, you know, second grade lemons to make lemoncello. We use second grade wine to make a coffee liqueur but that's not enough. Like there needs to be some other backup industry. And one of the ideas that we've brainstormed is could you actually turn all of that produce, could you ferment it, turn it into a wine-like product with alcohol and then distill that? And then could you Mm. use that? um, Could you use that spirit to either, again, like have carbon neutral vehicles that are running on bioethanol or um, biofuel, but actually still, still have the, this beautiful produce that is available to us in supermarkets, but find a way to be able to build in support mechanisms for um, that, the produce that doesn't, that doesn't leave farms and try and find a way to monetize that. But you are, there's a microbiology element missing there um, to make it efficient and economical, which is why no one's done it yet. So that would be cool if we could find the, the micro efficiency improvements to make that happen well I feel like if anyone's going to make it happen you guys will definitely be at the forefront of those discoveries I absolutely (laughs) have loved learning about how your minds work and how you've been able to put everything you've learned into such a beautiful practice in your business together thank you so so much for joining and sharing all the amazing things you're doing and I can't wait to see what you guys do next Norris thank you so much thanks for having us (laughs) thanks guys Thanks for listening to In Their Element. It's been an absolute pleasure bringing it to you. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to subscribe to the series and we'll send you an alert the moment our next episode drops. And more importantly, if the career path you've heard about here appeals to you, jump on the Uni of Adelaide website today to learn all about the science degrees that can get you there. Until next time, bye-bye.